If you uh, have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn with me to the book of Jude. It's the uh, second last uh, book of the Bible. And I don't know uh, about you, um, uh, but I've ordered a, a mattress off the internet before. Uh, and I know getting the box in the mail, I look at that box and I think, how on earth can that mattress fit in that box? And sure enough, you open the box and the mattress uh, starts to unfurl and there it is, uh, a, a full mattress. Well, that's sort of what the uh, book of Jude is like. Uh, though it's only 24 verses, there is more packed in these 24 verses than you would think is possible. Uh, one pastor I consulted uh, preached 12 sermons on the book of Jude. Uh, I'm sure you could find more uh, as well, but that's not going to be our approach uh, today. We're just doing an overview uh, of the book, and my hope is that that will perhaps uh, whet your appetite uh, for further personal study. And so let's uh, look now at the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to, to, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth, boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. 
But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Oh God, as we continue this study in the short books of the Bible, we come to a book that is perhaps unfamiliar to us and certainly, Lord, confusing at many points. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit's help to help us, Lord, understand what you are saying and to understand what it means for our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the enduring application of this truth to us today and that you would help me, Lord, to speak clearly and with conviction as I ought. This, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is uh, something in us that likes a, a good fight, a valiant struggle. That's why movies are made about these sorts of things. That's the reason, for example, that Theodore Roosevelt's famous speech, The Man in the Arena, stirs in those who hear it such deep feeling. The nobleman, says Roosevelt, is not the sideline critic, but the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. The man worthy of emulation, of copying, he said, is the war-torn hotspur spent with hard fighting. He of the many heirs and valiant end over whose memory we love to linger. It's not the memory of the young Lord who but for vile guns would have been a valiant soldier. Now Roosevelt's words are rousing as they speak of the struggle that man endures and they're also right. Now of course there's ways in which we can get fighting wrong. The first way we can get it wrong is to be overly contentious. We can fight about everything. Sometimes we can be known perhaps as being combative and we move toward conflict and not to extinguish its violent flames but to watch with excitement or worse, to add fuel to the fire. I know that that can be sometimes a, a particular danger for those of our theological tribe. And this is out of step with the Bible's commands not to be quarrelsome but to pursue peace and to promote Unity. We can get fighting wrong by fighting over the wrong things uh, or, and in the wrong way and at the wrong times. But equally dangerous is the man or woman who has no will to fight. The limp and listless, the passive pushover who never contends for anything at all. The one who flees the arena whenever there's any sign that things will get tough, that lines must be drawn, or that hard judgments must be made. Yes, it's true that we can fight at times, for the wrong things and in the wrong way. But just because we sometimes get this wrong doesn't mean that we are never to fight. 
Now, looking at the book of Jude, we're told quite plainly that we are called to contend. We are called to fight for the faith that we've received from Jesus through the apostles. We see this in verse 3. Contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Now, by faith here, Jude is not speaking about the individual act of believing, I have faith or I'm trusting in Jesus, but he's saying contend for the faith, that is, the message about Jesus uh, who lived and died and who was raised again, the message that Jesus entrusted to his apostles and has hence entrusted to all Christians. But who's to step into this arena? Against whom are we to contend? And what exactly does this look like? How are we to do it? These are the questions that Jude answers for us. And what we'll see as we look at the book of Jude this morning is that Jude calls all Christians to contend, to fight, to struggle for the faith by watching out, by working out, by reaching out, and by being held on to. And so for our outline this morning, we're going to consider first who does the contending. And then we're going to look at why contending is necessary And then we're going to look at how we are to contend for the faith. So who, why, and how. Let's begin by looking at who the call to contend is given to. Now this letter was written by Jude. It's likely that Jude uh, is the one who is identified as the half-brother of Jesus and the brother of James. And we don't know exactly who Jude is addressing uh, this letter to. We don't have a, a, a geographic address at least. Uh, But it's clear he's writing to a group of Christians. And he refers to them as those who are called, those who are beloved in God the Father, and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. Each of these descriptions tells us something about what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means that you are called by God, that you are kept for God, and that you are loved by God. To be a Christian means that God has chosen you to belong to him. The Apostle Paul describes being a Christian in a similar way when he tells the Roman Christians that you are called to belong to Jesus. And God in his mercy, he's reached down, Paul says, he's, he's stooped down and he's, he's taken us out of sin and he's brought us into the kingdom of his son. But he not only calls us, he loves us even as he loves his own son, Jude says. God has a, a deep affection. He's got a loving concern for these people. To be a Christian, to be a genuine Christian, is to be someone upon whom the Father smiles. He counts you dear. As one translation puts it, Jude writes to those who are wrapped in the love of God the Father. What a great description. And they're also kept. They're protected and guarded for uh, Jesus, like a bride who's kept and preserved for her husband. So these called ones are being kept by God for the day when they shall finally be given to the heavenly bridegroom, Jesus. It's a marvelous thing to be a Christian, and that's who Jude addresses. He addresses Christians. But consider who Jude does not address. This is not a letter written just to pastors or elders. It's written to the man or woman in the pew as well. Now, this is a significant point as we consider the overarching point or purpose to Jude's letter. We might sometimes think that it's the elders' jobs to contend for the faith and protect the flock. And certainly it is. But it's not exclusively the elders' job. Christian, it's your job to contend for the faith, according to Jude. It's your job as 
Peterson's paraphrase puts it, to fight with everything in you for this faith that has been entrusted to us. Whether you're a teenager or whether you're an elderly saint or somewhere in between, if you're a Christian, Jude calls you, contend for the faith. Now, before we consider how we're to contend for the faith, we need to consider why we're to contend for the faith. And Jude gives us two reasons. The first reason is that the gospel is a message that we have received. It's a valuable message we've received. Jude clearly has this in view, uh, or clearly has in view the apostolic gospel when he's speaking of the faith, meaning the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. According to Jude, the faith that all the believers are to contend for is a message about a person that is entrusted to us and that we cannot change. It's been delivered to us once for all, Jude says. In other words, it's come to us as a finished deal. This might seem a little bit abstract, so let me use an illustration. Imagine for a second, as I sometimes do, that I was independently wealthy. And I secured for myself a real Jackson Pollock painting. Painting 17A. Not exactly a great name, uh, but it's considered a masterpiece. And whether you like it or not, at $200 million, it costs like a masterpiece. But suppose I delivered my Jackson Pollock painting 17A to you to be displayed in your home. The painting is done once for all. It's completed. And the second that you start thinking that that canvas is yours to play with or alter, you've ruined it. And you've cost me millions of dollars in the process. The faith which we've been entrusted to is like a Jackson Pollock painting. It's not ours to play with or alter. It's the message about what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's the message in Jesus to the sinner that you can be forgiven. It's the declaration to the alienated that you can be reconciled. It's the proclamation to the polluted that you can be cleansed. When it comes to the gospel, we preserve it, we promote it, we display it, but we don't play with it and we don't alter it in any way. In the gospel, we've received a masterpiece, not a blank canvas for us to play with. So the value of this message entrusted to us is the first reason we are called to contend for it. It matters. But the second reason we're called to contend for is because there are those who would seek to undermine the faith. Jude says, I was hoping to write to you about the common salvation, the common faith that we share in Jesus, but I had to write to you to contend for the faith because a threat had emerged. Look at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude says that there are those who have snuck into the church who were never actually Christians. And they're people who are a threat not to the gospel itself, but to the people in the church. By their lives and likely by their teaching, these infiltrators, these falsely professing Christians were distorting and denying the gospel of grace. And verses 5 to 16 is basically an expansion on this point that Jude makes. Because these verses tell us more about the people who have crept into the fellowship of the church. And in these verses, Jude tells us uh, who they are like and what these false professors are like. And then he tells us where they're headed. Now, who they're like, well, in verses 5 to 9, Jude uses three historical examples of certain types of sinners from uh, the Old Testament. Jude refers to the unbelieving Israelites in 
the Exodus in verse 5. Uh, verse 6, uh, it, uh, there's some discussion around verse 6, but it's uh, possible that this is a reference to the sons of God uh, found in uh, Genesis 6. And then there's the sexually immoral men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we could uh, spend a lot of time discussing these groups and the particular uh, sins which Jude references with respect to them. But what we need to know this morning in our overview is that Jude mentions them for a reason. He's drawing a parallel between them and the people who had infiltrated the church in his own day. Notice verse 8. In a similar way, Jude says, these people, speaking of those who are are in the church uh, in Jude's day, they defile the flesh they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. So what does he mean by this? Well, they defile the flesh. This is Jude's way of saying they're sexually immoral. Jude speaks broadly, but this would include, because of his reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, unnatural sexual relations between people of the same sex. He also likely means more than that. It's it's people who engage in sex outside of God's appointed place for it, marriage between a man and a woman. They also reject authority. Specifically, like the Israelites in the desert, they reject Jesus' authority. He speaks, but they don't listen and they don't believe. They're they're like the Israelites who were wandering around in the desert and they just weren't listening to God's word. When God speaks, they see it as an interesting suggestion. It's, It's not a divine command to them. And they also speak presumptively and without fear concerning angelic spirits. And this is, I think... Uh, quite likely a reference to uh, speaking um, uh, dismissively about evil angelic spirits or demons when he talks about blaspheming the glorious ones in verse 8. Their support of these sinful behaviors, Jude says, comes from dreams or visions. They're uh, men or women who haven't submitted themselves to God's standard, but they're guided by their own thoughts and their own fancies. When we're reading this, I can't help but think, loved ones, about how much this sounds like our own day. You sit down with someone and and you ask, well, why did you do this? Well, it's what I feel was right. Or why did you move in with your boyfriend? Well, I need to follow my heart. Why did you leave your wife? I didn't feel like being married anymore. Why do you think you're in the wrong body? I feel like a woman. It's as if Jude is speaking directly to our age. Gone is any reference to what God thinks or what God has said, it's ultimately about what I feel or what I think. And we, need, uh, we, we should not be fooled. Because just as in Jude's day, this thinking has creeped into the church. And not just churches out there. Don't kid yourself, we are equally susceptible to it. But then Jude goes on to say what these infiltrators are like. Notice all of the descriptions that Jude uses. He doesn't hold back, but it's like a flurry of verbal punches against these infiltrators. Seven main ones can be noted. They're unreasoning animals, verse 10. Dangerous hidden reefs, verse 12. Selfish shepherds, useless clouds and fruitless trees. Their shameful deeds sloshing up like wild waves, exposing themselves. They're wandering stars that lead people astray. In an age without Google Maps, right, people relied upon fixed uh, bodies in the sky to help them navigate to a chosen destination. But those who have crept in, they're unreliable. They're misleading guides. Jude is using these vivid descriptions to say that there are some who have found their way into the church who are foolish, who are fruitless, who are futile, and who, above all, are fatal 
guides. Now, they're fatal guides because of where they're headed. They're headed for eternal destruction. Jude referenced eternal punishment in verses 5 through 7 when he speaks of these examples from the past. And now in verses 14 to 17, he references it again as he speaks about the judgment coming upon those in his own day. And Jude quotes from Jewish tradition, and he says that these false professors will suffer the judgment by the Lord Jesus and by his angels for their sin. Now today, not many people wish to speak about things like hell. Philosopher David Bentley Hart wrote, No truly accomplished New Testament scholar believes the later Christianity's opulent mythology of God's eternal torture chamber is clearly present in the scriptural texts. Now that's just a fancy way of saying, I don't want to believe in hell. A recent Gallup survey showed 59% of Americans believe in hell, and that's down 12% from 2001. Yeah, I don't know how we can read this short book from uh, Jude without butting up against the conviction that hell is very real. Speaking of these past examples, Jude says they were destroyed. They were kept in eternal chains in gloomy darkness. They're undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Speaking of the infiltrators in his own day, Jude says, for them, the blackest darkness has been reserved for them. Utter darkness, eternal chains, eternal fire. Jude's using these very sharp word pictures to communicate something important about hell, something about where these false professors are headed if they don't repent. Scripture is telling us that hell is eternal. Jude repeats this notion so that we're not going to be mistaken on this point. It's not like a bad movie that's just going to eventually end sometime. It's forever. It's miserable. It's frightening. I recently read a book on the largest forest fire recorded in American history. It burned uh, over 3 million acres. And in the book, um, the author was, was writing these vivid descriptions as, as uh, much of Idaho and Montana and Wyoming smoldered. Suddenly, this 80-mile-an-hour this wind picked up through the, the prairies and started blowing this fire, and it, and it came combined in like a super fire. Imagine this, a wall 100 feet high of fire racing toward these people in their towns. You can't escape it. You can't outrun it. You can't stop it. That, says Jude, gives us a glimpse of what the terror of hell is like. Now, some people mock these descriptions of hell. They make cartoons of them. Others dismiss them. But there's a reason that Jude speaks this way. And though we don't revel in the prospect of this terrible judgment, neither should we be embarrassed by it or, make ex- uh, or sort of try and explain it away. We should desire that all would be saved. That's why Jude, for example, gives a warning in this book to his hearers. He says, you don't want to follow these people where they're headed. And this mighty judgment, Jude says, will come at the hand of the Lord Jesus and his ministering angels. Sometimes we pit the teaching of of hell and Jesus against each other. But that can't be according to Jude. In verses 5 and 6, Jude says that Jesus carried out his judgment in the past And he will carry out his just judgment in the future on all who have rejected his authority and refused to believe in him. Jesus carried out this judgment in the past. And Jude says this same judgment will come upon those who would pervert the grace of Jesus in his own day. 
And friend, it shall come upon you today too if you're abusing the goodness and graciousness of God to wallow in your sin. Now please hear me. Jude is not talking here about the person who confesses Christ and who's, you're struggling with, with your sin, or you're repenting of it, you're fighting it, uh, nor is he talking about this, the, the Christian who has perhaps fallen into a particularly grievous sin but who's turning to God uh, with that. Jude here is talking about a Christian who uses their Christian profession as a masquerade mask to cover their wicked indulgence. They use religious talk so that they can hold on to their sin, not so they can vanquish it. Jude's point to the church today is don't follow such people. Their end is destruction. Okay, so we've seen that all Christians are called to contend for the faith, and this is, to be done, this is to be done because we've got a valuable message that we've received and because there are those who are seeking to undermine it. But this leads to the question, how? How are we to contend for the faith? And Jude gives us four ways. First, we contend for the faith by watching out. Or as Jude puts it, remember. Remember what the apostles of Jesus have told you. The apostles have told you that as we live in the period between uh, Christ's first coming and his second coming, there will be scoffers. There will be ungodly people. They're worldly, not wise, and they're going to cause divisions in your churches as they pursue your own sinful agendas. Jude's saying the first step to contending for the faith is not to be surprised when these individuals reveal themselves. We need to watch out. We need to recognize that Jesus taught the church this side of his return that we would have false professors among us. Secondly, we contend for the faith by watching out, or or, sorry, by, by working out. Watching out is defensive in nature, but we also need to do something positive. We also need to work out. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And Jude is calling us to do something similar here in verses 20 uh, to 21. He says, but you, beloved... Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, Jude could be saying here that we're to maintain our love for God, or maybe he's saying that we should uh, cultivate the assurance of or the experience of God's love for us. So the question is, is Jude saying something about our love to God or God's love for us? Well, I think uh, commentator Tom Schreiner is right when he says the choice is probably an unnecessary one. Because as we grow in the experience of God's love, our love to him grows in turn. And what's important for us to see, though, here from this text, is that we have a responsibility to be strengthened in grace. And this is important for us to understand because, because there are those who would seek to undermine the faith, uh, the faith which has been delivered to us, we need to intentionally strengthen ourselves in the assurance that God loves us. And we do this by building ourselves up by studying the scriptures, Jude says. It's listening carefully to sermons. It's engaging in in private and and, uh, family devotions. It's going to Bible study or or small group. That's why as as ministry signups happen, we'd encourage you, join with other believers so that you might uh, be strengthened in your assurance of God's love as you speak and pray the word together. We also uh, keep ourselves in God's love by praying with the help of God's spirit. Saying things like, oh God, help me to know your love for me in Jesus. Lord, help me to obey your word. Help me to to believe your promises. Strengthen me to resist sin and Satan. And Jude also says we keep ourselves in God's love 
by waiting or waiting anxiously or expectantly, as one translation puts it, for the return of Jesus, for the revealing of his mercy on that last day. One way we keep ourselves in the love of God is by setting our eyes to the promised coming of Jesus. Like a bride deepens her love for her groom as she thinks eagerly upon her coming wedding day, so the love of God is strengthened in us as we eagerly contemplate the coming of Jesus for his people. So Christian, I wonder, is the coming of Christ something that you've thought about recently? Think much on it, Jude would say, to keep yourself in the experience of Christ's love for you. Thirdly, we contend for the faith by reaching out to rescue others. Strengthening ourselves, now we move toward others. In verse 22 to 23, Jude speaks about how we're to deal with those in the church who are wondering, those who are wandering, and those who are clearly wayward. We're to show loving uh, mercy. We're to show loving concern in, in all cases. But how we do that is going to differ according to the situation. The, way we're, or the, the, the wondering are those who doubt. They're those who have had their confidence in the faith shaken by those who have infiltrated the church. They've maybe seen the example of, of those who have come in. They've heard their arguments, and it's caused questions. It's, it's caused them to start to wonder. Maybe an example today would be the Christian who's hearing people in the church call into question the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. Right? Is it really a sin? I don't, I don't know. What do I make, how do I make sense of this? Jude says plainly with regards to these people, bear with them. Instruct and correct, yes, but patiently and with loving concern. Others have perhaps moved from wondering to wandering. They've wandered after the example of those who are denying the authority of Jesus. And they're now maybe dipping a toe or perhaps even a leg into disobedience. They're engaging in sin themselves. They've gone from thinking to doing. Now, Jude speaks here with a little bit more urgency. We're called to save them. We're called to pull them to safety like a fireman would pull someone out of a burning building. And still further, there are those who are clearly wayward. Maybe Jude is here speaking of the false professors themselves who are immersed in sin. But we should show concern for these people as well, Jude says. However, because they're more deeply entangled in, in sin, he says, be careful. Right? Uh, hate even, even the, 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 the garments of the flesh, he, he puts it. Uh, they're stained by the flesh. Right? We want to be on guard. Now, if any of you uh, were to talk to the elders at this church, they would tell you that one of the hardest parts of our job is helping those who are wondering and wandering and who are wayward. You know, that phone call or that face-to-face -face meeting where we have to talk about particular sin issue. That's a big part of your elders' ministry among you. But remember that Jude is not writing to elders. He's writing to the church. The, the call to contend for the faith by moving toward those who are wavering and wandering and wondering, it's not exclusively the responsibility of those men who are called to ordained office. It's the responsibility of the whole church. In love, help those who are genuinely doubting. When you see a, a fellow church member who's stuck in sin and, and it's a sin you can't cover in love, you've got a responsibility to speak to them. Don't come in and smash them over the head with a hammer, right? But with mercy, ask them to have a conversation about it and clearly, compassionately deal with them. 
Contending for the faith involves not only watching out for danger and working out our salvation, it also means reaching out to help others who are caught in sin or being deceived. Now there's one final thing we need to keep in mind as we contend for the faith. Jude opened the letter with this point and now he closes with it. It's as as though he wants us to understand that all of our contending for the faith happens within the the context, the, the atmosphere of this wonderful truth that God is holding on to his people. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Life in the church, messy as it is, is hard. Pastor Jude is writing to these Christians, telling them, okay, you got to watch out for deceivers in your midst. He's telling them, okay, there's people who are doubting, who are are wandering, who are are wavering, right? You need to, to, to move toward them, but also be careful that you don't get tripped up yourself. And it's interesting to think that Jude doesn't tell these Christians to retreat, right? Wouldn't that be safer? Wouldn't it make it less likely that you would forsake the faith, get away from the false teachers, uh, uh, stay away from the confused sheep who might trip you up themselves? But Jude doesn't do that. Quite the opposite. He says, contend for the faith, engage, don't concede ground. Why can we do that? Because as he says in verse 24, God is able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to keep us from losing the faith. He will present us as blameless before his throne. Christian, you contend for the faith, but you don't contend for the faith like the Detroit Lions contend for the playoffs. Right? Will they make it? Won't they? Okay, it's the Lions. Eh, probably not. Right? There's no uncertainty in this outcome. Not for the Christian. There's a reason why Jude starts and ends with this point. Right? In verse 1, when Jude says, those who belong to Jesus are kept for Jesus. They're protected uh, for Jesus forever. And now in the end, he says, God can keep you. And all of our striving and all of our contending that Jude has called us to takes place within the certainty that God will not allow us to be lost. In verse 10, we're told that God the Father has given, or in John 10, rather, we're, we're told that God the Father has given to Jesus all those whom he has called. And no one, Jesus says, is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand since the Father is greater than all. To be able to keep you from falling, uh, uh, but, but then allow that to happen, would mean that the Father was happy for his Son to be shortchanged. And it's not so. The Father would never let his Son be cheated of the reward for which he died. And so he will not let you, dear Christian, be lost. So knowing the value of this message of Christ and knowing that it will be opposed, contend for the faith believer by watching out, by working out, by reaching out, and do it all in the confidence of knowing that you're being held onto. You are safe and secure in the hands of Jesus until that time when fighting and striving will cease and we shall stand in his presence with great and unending joy. Amen. Amen. Our Father in heaven, though, Lord, in this life uh, there are difficulties and trials, and, uh, Lord, there, there are those who are enemies of your Son. Lord, we thank you that we are held securely in our Lord and Savior Jesus. And, Lord, I pray that you 
would work in your people the courage, the faith, the confidence to contend for the faith as you call us to in this short book. Lord, that we would be on guard, that we would, Lord, be active in keeping ourselves in the love of God, that, Lord, we would be moving toward those who are stuck in sin or confused or deceived. And, Lord, do all, do all of this as, as we um, are confident in, the, in um, just the promise that you will surely keep us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.